This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 551, Terry Steinbach, catcher for the Oakland Athletics. Okay, Terry Steinbach, we're looking forward to this one, but we do have some follow-up from recent episodes. And first, I want to say welcome back stateside, David. For our last episode about Tim Wallach, you were in Canada. You were actually in Montreal when the show released. So I wondered if you had any stories from the Great White North that you'd like to share. I was in the elevator in our hotel in Quebec City, and an older gentleman asked me about my t-shirt. And I'm, I'm actually wearing the same t-shirt right now. It's a baseball reference t-shirt from our friends over at baseballreference.com. And this man had never heard of baseballreference.com. He was holding a Baltimore Orioles reusable bag. He yeah. must be a baseball fan. Like You don't just come across a Baltimore Orioles reusable bag. He was also a Yankees fan. And what? he was a big baseball fan, and he, but he had never heard of baseballreference.com. And so I was able to do the Lord's work here and <laughs> tell a man all about baseballreference.com and all the many wonders that you could find on Baseball Reference. However, this is just another sign that we do need business cards for the 1988 Tops podcast. Business cards promoting the pod, I think, are a good, good item that I'm adding onto our vision board. The vision board is just pictures of Jay Baller and then it just the words <laughs> business card. And, uh, a QR, <laughs> and a QR code on the back that goes to anchor.fm. Yes. I, one um, fun story that I have from not this trip to Quebec, but the last time that I flew out of Montreal airport, I, as you do, I bought some syrup for friends and family. It's one of the main exports. Canada has their strategic syrup supply in, locked in a vault. So I bought this syrup and I had it in my carry-on. And it was in a small metal container and I totally forgot. So I'm going through security and the very kind man, and I was wearing an Expos hat, and the very kind Canadian border patrolman said, do you have something in your bag? Possibly syrup. And I said, is it always syrup? <laughs> And he said, most of the time it's syrup. So I I ended up having to throw my syrup away, which oh. I, I think that they just probably take from the airport. They just take the syrup to the strategic syrup supply room. It sounds like, I don't know how you say in French, what a scam. I guess I should find that out. C'est un scam. C'est un scam to... Sell syrup and then commandeer it immediately as people are leaving the country. And then it was my mistake. I should have put that in check luggage. That, mm. That's like traveling 101. Put syrup in your checked luggage. Yeah, I, I made the mistake with some uh, pecan butter when leaving Texas one time. So I, f I feel your pain. It happens to people with Malort as they're leaving Chicago. The Chicago airport is just littered with tiny Malort bottles. All of the major trade goods of the various regions of North America. So thank you for sharing that. We're glad to have you back in the U.S. But in the meantime, we had some follow-up about Ron Karkovice. I don't recall the listener's name, so apologies to the listener who is a Tigers fan who pointed out 
that Ron Karkovice destroyed the Tigers. And I pulled this up on Baseball Reference, Ron Karkovice's splits versus the Tigers. So as we recall, Ron was a light-hitting catcher, 221 average, 289 uh, 289 on-base percentage, 383 slugging for his career, 96 career home runs. Against the Tigers, he hit 303, 40 points higher than his next best opponent. He had a 962 OPS, 300-ish points better than his career OPS. 17 of his 96 home runs were against the Tigers. He had no more than nine against any other team. And it's not just that it was a small sample size. He played 77 games against them. So Ron Karkovice was just a Tiger killer. So thank you to the listener Tiger fan who pointed that out. Always love to have Ron Karkovice follow-up. Yes, thank you very much for that. And now to this week's card with Terry Steinbach. And why are we talking about Terry today? This card was a suggestion from a listener on Twitter. Thank you, Adam Perilli, at Kalastama Child. And even though Adam has Kevin De Bruyne as his profile picture, we accepted this recommendation, <laughs> this suggestion of Terry Steinbach. And the suggestion was made... Apropos of nothing, can I please request Terry Steinbach? And because I was on vacation and Terry Steinbach has a Sabre bio, which makes it much easier to do the research, we got to this one right away. Thank you to Sabre bio authors Herb Shaper and Stu Thornley for a great Sabre bio on Terry Steinbach. Terry was a key part of the great A's teams of the late 80s, early 90s, and a personal favorite of mine growing up. And Terry had a couple cool moments in his career, including a a very memorable all-star game home run. Sounds like a great episode to me. So let's get it started. We'll go to the front of 551. And we have Terry Steinbach getting ready to bat in an empty stadium. He is staring at his bat in awe of it or looking very confused as to whose bat it is or what it's doing in his hands. This is similar to another Oakland A's card that we have covered, Tony Bernazard, where he was also talking to his bat, it seemed. Terry's asking this bat, one home run, please. (laughs) Help me out here. (laughs) Something else I noticed on this card, his helmet. This is not what I remember as the Terry Steinbach helmet. This helmet has no ear flaps. Terry memorably had the full C flap that covered his chin down to his mouth and was one of the first players that I remember having that distinctive C-flap helmet. But in this one, he has the ice cream dish (laughs) A's helmet. Yeah, and the uniform itself doesn't look like the regular season uniform that I recall. This is a deep green with yellow trim on the sleeves and collar and a big A in A's. So this looks like an off-season or warm-up jersey. So it's not my favorite. Could be a warm-up jersey. The blue seats are reminiscent of old Tiger Stadium, where some of the pictures on other cards were taken in this set. I think it's a pretty good-looking card, and this is how I remember Terry Steinbach, aside from that helmet that just... That's not Terry Steinbach's helmet. Yeah, good lighting. He looks good here. Now let's go to the back of 551, and we have Terry Steinbach, catcher, six foot one, one ninety-five. Right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the A's in the ninth round of 1983. 
born March 2nd, 1962 in New Ulm, Minnesota, with a home in North St. Paul, Minnesota. New Ulm is about a one and a half hour drive southwest of Minneapolis, founded by German immigrants throughout the Midwest in the 1850s, looking to get away from anti-immigrant sentiment in other big cities. Due to the large German population, there was a large anti-war movement at the outset of World War I with mass demonstrations that led to the removal of a mayor of New Ulm by the governor of Minnesota. Despite that history, during World War II, a German POW camp was located in the area of New Ulm at Flandrau State Park. Many New Ulm residents still at that point in the 1940s spoke German. Some befriended the POWs. They brought them food and talked to them, hoping to learn more about the state of their relatives back home in the old country. And in one case, a family snuck a POW out of the camp, hung out with them all weekend. They went to church, had a picnic. Not realizing the severity of this offense, they just drove him back at the end of the weekend and dropped him off, at which point they were arrested. And they ended up being fined $300, and the POW was punished with solitary confinement. So uh, big German influence in this city. Other famous New Olmsters include August Schell, founder of the Schell Brewery, which is the second oldest family-owned brewery in the country after the Yingling Brewery. Bird enthusiast and mother of Melanie Griffith, Tippi Hedren, is from New Ulm. Wanda Gag, who wrote the children's book Millions of Cats in 1929. It is the oldest American book still in print, first published in 1929. And New Ulm was at one point the polka capital of the nation and is home of a couple famous polka band leaders, including Whoopi John Wilfart and Harold Loffelmacher, who was the band leader of the Six Fat Dutchmen. The Six Fat Dutchmen played on the Lawrence Welk Show a dozen times, they played 26 straight years at the Nebraska State Fair. Harold passed away in 1987, and in 1990, he was inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame. So up there with luminaries like Prince, Bob Dylan, The Replacements, Harold Loffelmacher. And Matt, I sent you a, a couple Harold Loffelmacher and the Six Fat Dutchman songs to dive deep into. Yeah, and we'll play a little bit of... One of their great hits, In Heaven There Is No Beer. And Matt in German, that's In Himmel Gips Kein Beer. Very glad that we're finally getting to talk about polka on the show because, as you know, my other podcast about polka on TV, which is called Welk This Way, we, I wanted to make sure that you were taking a drink while I, when I said that. Polka has played an important part of my life since I'm from Pennsylvania and am part Polish and at one time owned and played an accordion. It's been a part of my life for a long time. When I was a kid and I first started playing the violin, my grandfather asked me if, I, there, if there were two songs I could learn to play. One was the Yellow Canary, which I never learned and couldn't find anywhere. I didn't know how to play. But the other song was, he said, can you learn to play in heaven there is no beer? 
And so one of the earliest songs I learned to play uh, on my own was that song. Can you still play that on the violin? I, I no longer have a violin either, but I'm sure I could figure it out on guitar. This song is great, and I'm glad to see it continue its relevance and that we, we can do all we can to keep promoting it because it's very pleasant musical style. It's easy to dance to. You really just have to spin in a circle, and you're, gonna do, you're doing fine. As listeners probably know, because they're all tuning in to KNUJ Radio, that recording that we played it was recorded at the New Ulm Armory in mm. 1979. So Steinbach, clearly also a German name. I believe it means something like a rock creek. And Terry's dad, Lloyd, worked as a technician for 3M, fixing copiers. His mom was a cook at the local school. Terry was the third of four kids, and the whole family would attend these town team games. There were these amateur teams, the Brewers and Kaiserhof in New Ulm. At New Ulm High School, Terry played football and ran cross country his first couple of years, but his two best sports were hockey and baseball. In 1978, his American Legion team won the state tournament, and Terry beat a young Kent Herbeck for tournament MVP. After he graduated from New Ulm High School, he played for Kaiser. In the year that he played there, they went 14-2 and and won the state tournament. Terry hit two home runs in the championship game, hit 500 with 10 RBIs for the tournament. He thought about playing D2 baseball and hockey and tried to go to a school that would allow him to play both. But then he got drafted in the 16th round by Cleveland, and he realized maybe he should go to a bigger program and focus on a career in baseball. Meanwhile, his brother Tom was going into his sophomore season at the University of Minnesota And so Terry thought, good idea to join him. So going into 1981, the Gophers had three different Steinbacks. Brother Tim, who had played hockey and baseball at Wisconsin River Falls, transferred. Tom was there as a sophomore, and Terry was a freshman. In a 1982 New York Times article, it said that Tom Steinbeck was the best of the three, In 1981, he set Minnesota single-season records for home runs of 14, runs batted in, runs, and total bases. Tom had been a walk-on and then hit 389 as a freshman. So this Steinbach talent factory just running wild in Minneapolis. Tom was, at this point, a major league prospect. But even by 1982, it was clear that Terry was coming on strong, running on his brother's heels here. But Terry wasn't a catcher. Tim was the catcher, Terry was playing third base, and Tom was in right field. And who's on first? (laughs) Terry hit 402 in 1982, and he broke his brother's record with 65 RBIs. Terry said, playing with them has always given me extra confidence. I've always played at least a year above myself. So Terry's playing really well at Minnesota. That continues in 1983. The Gophers finished first in the Big Ten West. And Terry and Tom both have great seasons. They were both first-team All-Big Ten. Tom was first-team All-Big Ten for three straight seasons, 81 through 83, and Terry in 82 and 83. Tom set the Gopher career home run record with 45, and Terry finished the season with a career 375 average. Both brothers end up getting picked in the Major League Draft. Terry is a junior and Tom is a senior. Tom was drafted by the Mariners, Oddly, in 1983, there were two guys named Tom Steinbach drafted. 
The second was picked in the 27th round, but our brother here, Tom, played only one season of minor league ball before getting released by the Mariners and returning to New Ulm. But for Terry getting drafted, that takes us to the this way to the clubhouse that Terry was signed as a ninth round draft selection with the A's, June 11th, 1983 by scout Jim Perry. And if that name sounds familiar, this was Jim, brother of Gaylord Perry, who at one time held the record for wins by siblings. That was before the Negro Brothers broke it in 1987. Jim Perry pitched for 17 seasons, won over 200 games for Cleveland, Minnesota, Detroit, and Oakland. He also won the 1970 Cy Young Award with the Twins. He went into scouting for the A's in retirement. Terry Steinbach was his best find. He later moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota and worked for Dialnet, which was a long-distance phone service. With this success of Jim Perry, this is now truly a My Brother, My Brother and Me episode of the 1988 Tops podcast. So many brothers. Great job. With the ninth round draft selection, Terry decided to forgo his senior season and sign with the A's. So he didn't have a chance to try to break his brother's career home run record. And that ninth round of the draft was oddly successful because along with Steinbach, there was also three-time All-Star and 300-save club closer Jeff Montgomery, 10-year veteran Jeff Parrott, Glenn Allen Hill, and a guy who George Steinbrenner didn't appreciate, Jay Buhner. Terry gets to go from the ninth round straight from college to Medford, Oregon. At low A ball, Terry hit 315 with six home runs and 38 RBIs in 62 games. And all of those games were played at third base. In 1984, he moves up to high A, plays at Madison with the Muskies, hitting 295 with 11 home runs. But something happened in that 1984 draft that changed Terry's career trajectory. With the 10th pick, the A's selected a third baseman out of University of Southern California and the U.S. Olympic team named Mark McGuire. And Mark McGuire at this point was a third baseman. He didn't play first regularly until his rookie year of 1987. So the A's also had a a highly regarded first base prospect in their system who didn't end up panning out. So after the 1984 season, the A's send Terry to instructional league and they train him as a catcher. He moved to AA Huntsville for 1985, played some some as a backup catcher, but mostly as a DH, and was pretty good, hit 275. Then in 1986, he was still at AA Huntsville for a second year. He was the starting catcher, played solid defense behind the plate, but at the plate, he was incredible, hitting 325 with 24 home runs and 132 RBIs. That 132 RBIs broke Steve Balboni's league record of 122 set in 1980, and that made him Southern League's Player of the Year and also earned him a September call-up from AA. Very early in his major league career, we get a fun fact. And the fun fact is he belted his first major league home run September 12th, 1986, Thanks, Tops Corporation, for letting us know that, but you left out the rest of the fun fact, which is that it was his first plate appearance. So, David, we have back-to-back episodes where the player we review had a home run on their very first major league at bat, and for both of these players, they neglect to put that on their main card as a fun fact. Yeah, I did not look at the 1988 Tops big card for Terry Steinbach. So this, this home run happened on September 12th as the fun fact points out. 
The A's were down 8-2 in the sixth inning against Cleveland. Terry comes in as a defensive replacement for Mickey Fruit Loops Tettleton. And in the seventh, he steps to the plate against Greg Swindell and hit a home run in his first Major League plate appearance. He played in six games, went five for 15 with two home runs. So pretty good start to his Major League career. In 1987, which is the last line on this card, he was expected to split time with Mickey Tettleton behind the plate, but Tettleton was hitting only 088 in April, so Terry got much more playing time than he expected. He appeared in 122 games that year, 107 as a catcher, and hit 284 with 16 home runs. That's a great rookie year. Now, overshadowed overshadowed a bit by his now first baseman, teammate Mark McGuire, and also Matt Noakes and Kevin Seitzer, who had great rookie years as well. Steinbach received no Rookie of the Year votes, but 284 with 16 home runs, a great rookie year. And this really sets up a young, up-and-coming A's team. Steinbach, a rookie behind the plate at 25 years old, McGuire at first base. You have Jose Canseco in the outfield. Coming in the next year, you're going to have Walt Weiss, a very good young team putting some of the pieces together that are going to create this A's almost dynasty of the late 80s. In 1988, though, Steinbach does not immediately replicate this great performance from late 87. He ends up missing most of May due to an injury. And this injury actually explains why Terry isn't wearing his Terry Steinbach C-flap helmet. He was hit in the eye with a throw during pregame warmups, and it broke his orbital bone. Steinbach ended up needing to protect his face because he had just had surgery to repair that broken orbital bone. He got what was called the C-flap, so named for either Cheek or Crow after Dr. Robert Crow, who was the Atlanta Braves team doctor who invented this padded flap. Steinbach actually wasn't even aware that he was a trailblazer. He just really wanted to get back out and play after this pretty bad broken face bone injury. This C-flap helmet has become much more popular. It was really one of the main things that I knew about Terry was that he wore this kind of extreme looking helmet. I was reading an article that said that Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, John Carlos Stanton, Miguel Cabrera were all wearing the C-flap. Stanton wore it after being hit, but the other three wore it as a preventative measure. So wearing that new helmet he is back in business in 1988, but not hitting well. He was only hitting 217 at the All-Star break. Yet despite that, he was voted as a starter for the All-Star game thanks to the fan vote. Looking at the stats from 1988, this was not a great year for American League catchers. The AL war leaders among catchers were Bob Boone, who was 40, and had a 3.1 wins above replacement. Not a clear all-star. Second was Ernie Witt, who was 36 years old, also kind of older, solid catcher. And third was Carlton Fisk, who only played in 75 games. So Steinbach, he wasn't playing great, but he was playing for an exciting A's team. He had had a very good 1987, so his name was out there among baseball fans. Nobody else was really setting the world on fire. And he ends up winning the fan vote. The other catcher on this All-Star team was, and this would be a great trivia question of the two AL All-Stars in 1988, Tim Laudner. Not a household name. He was hitting 264 with nine home runs. So there wasn't a clear favorite. And Steinbach gets the start and ends up being an unlikely hero. 
He led off the third inning of the All-Star game against Dwight Gooden. At that point, it was still a 0-0 game. And he said, I was nervous. I was just thinking, don't strike out. Don't mess up. The stadium, the Ohio River, the bridges into Kentucky, and underneath the blimp, downtown Cincinnati. There's a drive in the right field. It's back Strawberry all the way back. Terry said he was looking for a fastball. He took one for a strike, and then on the second pitch, hits a home run to right field that bounces just out of Daryl Strawberry's glove. And he was the first player in history to homer in his first Major League Baseball at bat and his first All-Star at bat. This was a huge moment on the national stage and also a huge moment for that C-flap helmet. Probably the first time a lot of people saw that, didn't really know the backstory, and just saw this guy with this kind of extreme helmet. It seemed almost like a gladiator. And then in the fourth inning with the bases loaded, Terry comes up again, hits another long fly ball, not a grand slam, but long enough to score Dave Winfield from third on a sack fly, driving in the American League's second run. They would ultimately win two to one, and Terry would win the All-Star MVP award. And that MVP award, David, comes with One of the most enormous and garish trophies in all of sports. It looks like they've put a statue of a baseball player on top of a silver-wrapped bottle of scotch container. Or a muffler. Yeah, or a muffler. Oh, yeah, the silver muffler. (laughs) But they they put the, the little baseball dude swinging the bat like on your Little League participation trophy on top of this giant muffler that has a Chevy insignia on it. So I don't know if he also got a like a free 1988 Chevy Cavalier. Mm. That's, <laughs> a good, that's, a, that's a good looking car. That's a solid car. But this is a giant trophy. Terry was worried that he was going to have to buy a second seat for the trophy for his flight back. <laughs> the A's had been coming off of a long 14-game road stretch So Terry had all of his luggage with him going to this all-star game. So it was a legitimate concern. You know, maybe he had to throw away some clothes to fit that giant trophy into his, into his carry on. You you don't want border patrol or security making you leave your all-star trophy at the gate. You don't want to check that either. Exactly. Well, and, and just think if, if they're going to make you throw out your syrup, just imagine what they might do with your trophy if you don't have it packaged properly. Yeah, you could fit a lot of syrup in that muffler. Terry said he hoped that, the, that he convinced people who voted for him that they did the right thing. Unfortunately, unlike other more established stars like Gary Carter, who had a clause in his contract to pay him $100,000 if he won the All-Star MVP, Terry had no such contract clause because no one including Terry and his agent, thought that this was remotely a possibility. So he didn't really get a bonus for that, except maybe he could sell that muffler for scrap. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was much better in the second half, though, maybe inspired by that silver muffler. He hit 302 to finish the season with a 265 average and nine home runs. The A's won 104 games. They swept the ALCS against the Red Sox. Terry was splitting time with podcast favorite Ron Hassey at this point and hit 250, one for four, and two walks in the ALCS. And in the World Series, he went four for 11, 
but it wasn't enough to help the A's overcome the Dodgers in that memorable series. In the series, Jose Canseco went 0-53 and McGuire hit 0-59. That didn't help things very much at all. The next season, he started the All-Star game again. This time, there was no question. Terry was hitting 322 at the break for another A's team that was on their way to an AL West title. He went one for three this time in the All-Star game. He had a single that moved Ruben Sierra from first to third. Sierra would then score on a Bo Jackson fielder's choice. The AL won again five to three. But Terry cooled off in the second half of that season, hitting 195 over the last two months. He finished 273 with seven home runs. Again, the A's make the playoffs. Terry had a relatively uneventful ALCS, playing in four games. He went three for 15 as the A's beat the Jays four games to one to make it to a second straight World Series. And Terry played games one and two of that World Series. He had a three-run homer in game two off of Big Daddy Rick Rushel. Oh, yeah. And this video includes some Tony La Russa prognostication. Great. Always makes the right decision. Never gets advice from the crowd. Manager Tony La Russa. He called it. Fly to left in the second inning. Inside, ball one. One and oh. You talk about your scouting reports. Tony LaRusso, when we had a chance to talk to him before the game, said, I feel that Steinbach's going to hit a home run off Russell. Again, you talk about matchups, low ball pitcher, low ball hitter. Just missed one the first time up. Two and up. That's quite a statement considering Terry only hit seven this year. He's always right. He's always right. right. Even when he's intentionally walking a batter at one and two. Twice. I was only at one of those games. (laughs) I was at the game the first time. I didn't even know that it happened. I had no idea until after the game because it was so. But let's move on to game three of the World Series in 1989. It was scheduled to be a Bob Welch start. So Ron Hassey was supposed to be behind the plate. And then something happened. Terry Steinbach is in the dugout when the earthquake hits. As the players leave the dugout to find their family, Terry's looking for his wife, Mary. And at this point, they were mostly concerned about their daughter, who was one and at home with a babysitter. The players didn't really know at first whether the game would restart. They didn't know how serious this was. They knew that the electricity went out, but they just thought, well, they'll get the electricity back on and then we'll restart the game. As we know, the series is delayed 10 days. Dave Stewart ends up getting the start in game three. And because Steinbach caught for Stewart, Terry gets to play again. He went one for four. And actually he went one for four in all four games. The A's win game three, 13 to seven. The final game of that series, Steinbach unexpectedly gets a two run triple scores and later walks to force in a run has a really good final game of the series, game four, to complete the sweep. A really good series for Steinbach, hits 250 with seven RBIs and wins a World Series ring. 1990 was the third straight trip to the postseason for the A's. Steinbach had a slightly down year. He was hitting 251, nine home runs. He did catch a no-hitter thrown by Dave Stewart that year. 
And into the playoffs, he hit 455 in the ALCS in three games. Like the rest of the A's, he faded in the World Series, went one for eight against the Reds. The team as a whole hit 207 as they were swept by Eric Davis, Ron Oster, and Grandma Minnie Lee and her fighting Reds. Over the next five seasons, from 1991 to 95, he had what I think of as Terry Steinbach seasons. He hit 274 to 285 every year. So in that 10-point range, he averaged 11 home runs and 57 driven in. On defense, he's often in the top 10 in putouts and assists for catchers. He was in the top five in caught stealing percentage in 94 and 95, catching around 40% of would-be base thieves. From 1991 to 95, he was sixth in defensive war among catchers with 5.3. So a very solid defensive catcher, particularly considering that at this point, he's only played for five years and hadn't grown up playing the position. In overall wins above replacement in that period, he was the fourth most valuable catcher at 14 wins above replacement behind only Chris Hoyles, which that name surprised me, Mike Piazza and Darren Dalton. Those other two make sense. This is a weird in-between time for catchers where some of the all-time greats had retired. Some of the next series of all-time greats were just getting started. And so Terry kind of fit into this odd period where there wasn't a specific dominant catcher. 1992, he played in the playoffs for the final time in his career, hitting a solid 292 with a home run and five RBIs in a series loss to the Blue Jays. He ended up making one more all-star appearance in 93, going one for two with an RBI double. So he got a hit in all of his all-star game appearances. In 1996, Terry is going into the final year of his contract, his 11th year with the A's. He's 34 and had a great run with Oakland and then proceeded to have a monster season. He had 35 home runs and drove in 100 runs in 1996. His previous career highs were 16 home runs and 67 RBIs. What on earth happened? He went from 15 home runs in 1995 to 35. 1995 was a shortened season, of course, and he only played 114 games, but still, that's a huge jump. And even though this team had McGuire and Canseco, I haven't found anything that's speculated any performance-enhancing drugs. His strikeouts were up a little bit that year. Home runs overall were up that season and were were higher, but not double. I also read that the Oakland Coliseum had changed dimensions that year, but that wasn't enough to explain this more than doubling of home runs because a lot of Terry's home runs came on the road. So it, it was just a very strange impressive season for Terry Steinbach. Impressive both given Terry's history, where he had some power, but also in the context of major league history. This is only the second time a catcher 34 years of age or older hit 30 plus home runs. The other time was Carlton Fisk in 1985. Only five players ever have hit over 25 home runs at age 34 or older as a catcher. So just a very strange outlier season for Terry Steinbach in 1996. He did get one MVP vote. Since that was the last year of his contract and he has a monster year, did he end up getting a big payday out of it? The A's had been paying him $4.2 million per year, but he was going to be 35 years old. I don't think that even that monster season could get him much more than 
than what the A's were already paying him. His family at this point had homes in the Bay Area, in Arizona for spring training, and in Minnesota. And so he decided to move back home full-time and take a slight pay cut to play for the Twins, still making almost $3 million a season to play in Minnesota at his childhood home. Now with the Twins in 1997, he didn't replicate those heroics from 1996. Over the next two seasons, he averaged only 245 and hit a combined 26 home runs for the Twins and then was granted free agency after the 1998 season. He re-signed with the Twins for 1999 and did better. He hit 284 in 101 games and caught his second career no-hitter that year in September, this time from Eric Milton. Comparing the two, Steinbach said that this this game was much more difficult. When he was catching for Dave Stewart, Stewart basically called his own game, and Steinbach said, I did a lot of following with him. Milton, however, I'm the veteran. I was more nervous than he was in the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings. He's going to pretty much throw what I call, so I felt a tremendous amount more pressure not to blow it. And after the season, Steinbach was a free agent again, but this time he announced his retirement at a press conference in November. But then in 2000, he was back in New Ulm playing for Kaiserhof again, and he was tempted to join Tony La Russa in St. Louis. And he also had an opportunity to play for the U.S. Olympic team. So Terry and his family, they're thinking about their different options. They go to their lake house to think it over and talk about it. What's dad going to do next? He goes water skiing and tears his hamstring from the bone. Which, oh. oh, ouch. I don't think of that as a water skiing incident. So he didn't do That's, either. He didn't, yeah. didn't play anymore. Leaves Tony La Russa hanging just like his hamstring was hanging. Oh. And... We close the book on Terry Steinbach. Final line, 14 seasons, more than 1,500 games played with 1,381 as a catcher, a career 271 average, 162 home runs, 745 RBIs, an OPS plus of 102. He was three times an All-Star and an All-Star MVP and also World Series champ in 1989 and got that one MVP vote in 1996. How about in retirement? Terry and Mary had three kids, Jill, Lucas, and Jake. In 2002, when Ron Gardner was brought in to manage the Twins, he tried to hire Terry. But Terry said, no thanks. He wanted to spend time with his kids and be there with his children through high school. And to that end, when his kids were playing at Wyzetta High School, Terry was an assistant baseball coach from 2008 to 2012. He also Spent 13 years as a spring training assistant and minor league instructor in the Twins organization. So he wasn't totally out of baseball, just not as a full-time instructor, just mostly during spring training. And then in 2012, with his kids all in or graduated from college, Terry looked to get back into the game full-time. And Ron Gardner was still the coach of the Twins, and he brought Terry on as his bench coach. Unfortunately, the last few years of Gardner's tenure in Minnesota were pretty bad. They were the worst four years in Twins history. Oof. So he only lasted until 2014. And when he was fired in 2014, Terry was let go after only two seasons on, on the bench. Terry still lives in Minnesota, attends Twins events, helps out catchers during spring training. So it seems that he has no ill feeling toward the team. He also raises money signing autographs for a New Ulm High School Scholarship Fund. So here's a guy that you admired as a kid and that you like that C-flap helmet and he had some memorable moments. 
What do we think now that we've looked into him a little bit more? Yeah, Terry played for this A's team that was so cool, that had Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco just bashing home runs. I think for that reason, I thought that Terry Steinbach was also a great power hitter. And now I look back and like, aside from that one outlier season, this 16 home run rookie year was his highest power output. But I do remember that home run in the All-Star game off Dwight Gooden, and that was a big deal. And that face mask burst onto the scene, and it seemed like this gladiator. And I played catcher as a kid and thought, this guy, this is the, the new cool catcher. It was him and Matt Noakes were, were going to be around forever. And Terry is still in baseball. He plays in a men's over 35 league for a team called the Hanska Bullheads, which is a great polka song. The Hanska Bullhead Polka by Harold Loffelmacher. Both Tim and Tom play on the team as well. Tom's in the local baseball hall of fame, the New Ulm Hall of Fame. And unfortunately, in 2017, Kaiserhof, that great local amateur team, folded after 48 years. And that reminds me of the Scott Gereltz episode and the Buckley Dutch Masters and these small town teams that really mean a lot to the local community. There is still a team in New Ulm, but for many years there were multiple. And I am glad that there's at least still one of these local amateur teams to keep around and and have this fun legacy of, of local baseball and local amateur baseball, because those teams helped Terry in that year, that summer between high school and college. It ended up sharpening his skills, getting him noticed. It really helped them reach the next level, playing against older competition and and better competition, ultimately going to college, going pro and becoming an all-star. To go along with that one MVP vote in 1996, he got one Hall of Fame vote in his first year on the ballot. Did he deserve more than that? Probably not. His career was very good, but he's the 45th best catcher all time by Baseball Reference War, right around Benito Santiago and Bob Boone and Mickey Tettleton, not quite Hall of Fame caliber, and a significant step below Mike Piazza, Carlton Fisk. And Terry had a Hall of Stats number in the 50s, so not quite the 100 necessary for Adam Dorowski's Hall of Stats immortality. He played at a thin time for catchers, though, so in my mind, he was a big deal. From 1980 to 2000, Steinbach's 28 wins above replacement is seventh best. Four of the guys ahead of him are in the Hall of Fame, Gary Carter, Piazza, and both Fisk and Rodriguez, two pudges. But those guys all had careers that didn't fall entirely within that period. Some of them played in the 70s, some played in the 2000s. But for Terry's career, he averaged 12 home runs, 57 RBIs a season, and a 271 average. For most of the 80s and 90s, that was a very good catcher if we compare him to Ron Karkovice. And he held it down for a team that made three straight World Series appearances, caught for Dave Stewart, one of the A's all-time greats. And he made the most of his time in the spotlight with that 1988 All-Star game. And he made those voters proud of him, and he made New Ulm proud of him. And he made me a fan, so much so that I assumed he was this amazing power hitter based off of that one home run. So thank you, Terry Steinbach, for helping us talk about polka and learning about New Ulm. The pride of New Ulm, Minnesota. Great helmet, great catcher, great card. Thank you for that story today, David. And thank you to you at home. If you've got the mania for a polka from Pennsylvania, we'd love to hear all about it on Twitter 
We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.